Uh, my name is Paul, uh, and I've been coming to SVC with my wife Heather for, uh, and our two kids as well, for the last few years. And I am a small group leader here with Wendy and Katrin, represent. Let me, um, let me add my welcome uh, to those of you here, especially if it's your first time here, if you're Hannah Raiden, uh, and those of you watching online on YouTube as well. Now, it's my great pleasure to continue on with our series in James, so let me pray for us. Then I'll read the passage, and then we'll step through it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us today. I pray that as I speak, it wouldn't be my words, but your words through me. Holy Spirit, we invite you here. and We pray that as we look at your word, that you would touch us, change us, and that we would meet with you. Amen. Right. James chapter 5. Verse 7, we're sort of coming into land a little bit, this is the back end of, of James. I will read, uh, it'll be from the English Standard Version this morning, and it goes a little like this from verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers... Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So, what is James pointing at? Why has he felt the need to write this down? James is once again, it seems, pointing at our attitudes, this time with respect to suffering. And he's saying that when suffering comes as it inevitably does, that we can be impatient, we grumble, and we lose heart. Well, as usual, James is characteristically short and to the point, and naturally this all needs a bit of working through, doesn't it? Why might it be that we feel that way towards suffering? Because I know I often do. When bad things happen, I can be lightning fast to grumble, and I can be Olympic level impatient with it. So James has got me banged to rights there, and maybe he's got you too. So let me share three things with you from the passage and from other parts of the Bible as well, to try and uncover what's going on. First, I want to talk about a kind of a role for suffering. It has its place. Second, God's offer to us. And third, our response and responsibility. Okay, so we'll talk about sort of a role for suffering first. And right out of the gate, I want to acknowledge one thing, which is that any talk on suffering is going to be incomplete. There is so much ink that has been spilled on this topic. Why does evil exist? How does God relate to evil? These are the kinds of questions that philosophers and theologians love to argue about. There is no shortage of academic discussions, and if you're interested and you want to know more, come and talk to me afterwards. I'm more than happy to point you in the right direction. But this morning, I just want to acknowledge that this life is sometimes enormously difficult that suffering is a particularly complex and difficult topic. And I just want to spend this short time that we have together this morning on what to do when suffering inevitably hits us. And it will, 
as many of us have seen over the last 20 months during the pandemic. And that's to say nothing of the day-to-day -day troubles and difficulties many of us face uh, with illnesses, with finances, with relationships. Okay, so why might it be that we can be tempted to be impatient, to grumble or to lose heart? I think, at least initially, isn't it that we struggle to see any purpose in suffering? Now, there is a, a lie, if I'm honest, a mindset, and it is quite pervasive in Western Christianity. It's dangerous, and we need to dispense with it when it rears its head. Now, it's not necessarily put this bluntly, but we can be led to believe that this life is something we're mostly to endure, like a bad roller coaster ride. Like we're to put up with its difficulties and to put our stock in waiting for heaven, as though somehow this is a big cosmic mistake that God's going to catch up, catch up to. And when the ride comes to a complete halt, we can stagger through the pearly gates to safety, restoration, relaxation, and eternal Disney+. Plus. <laughs> the problem with this view is that it makes us passive. It devalues this life, and it's simply not the mindset that James or even Jesus had. What I mean with it is that this life, with all its difficulties, has meaning, value, and purpose. And we need to take that very seriously. Why else would God step into human history and in a moment of excruciating suffering, the cross, take the burden of our sin and mistakes? Because this life matters. It's a process with a purpose, even if it's hard to see at the time. Now, to be clear, there are times where all you can do is hold on for dear life. That's true. But the overarching story of our lives should be a creative, active partnership with God himself. Now, if you recall in James 1, which Jason preached on some weeks ago, James talks in verse 24 about looking in the mirror. So you may remember that one. And James was saying there that there's a you that you are, and there's a you that you were called to be. And the vineyard has a phrase, come as you are, don't stare as you are. And the idea is that there's a responsibility you have to become the you that you were called to be. Now, I'm not sure if you recall, but I certainly do because I love words, that the Greek word behind this whole mirror thing points us towards Genesis. The sense is that the you that you were called to be is somehow embedded in the universe by the architect, by God himself almost, and that it's the work of a lifetime to recover that version of you. And the way to that version of you was opened up by Jesus' death and resurrection. And the invitation is to step into a direct relationship with the God who loves you, the author, the architect who has a journey for your life, and to work with him in a creative, active partnership. That's what James's letter pivots on, the here and the now, and persevering through suffering it seems, has a unique position in our stories of transformation. Now, James is not the only one suggesting that persevering through suffering yields growth. Here's Paul in Romans 5, 3 to 5, where he says they rejoice. Whew, rejoice in their sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character, he says, produces hope. The kind of hope that knows that God's in control, that he is good. Okay. Suffering produces endurance. That, I get, yes. In the face of suffering, stick at it, don't give up. That will produce a spirit of endurance, like a runner, learning to run longer distances. Sure. 
Endurance produces character. Yeah, I think someone who's endured much, you know as well as I do, they're normally brimming with character. They've seen things, you know? And character produces hope. Now, that one does not follow. Consider this. Someone can go through suffering which they endure, and the endurance produces character. But what if that character is cynical, bitter, or distrustful? What I'm saying, then, is there's an element of choice about how we view this life and how we view suffering's role within it. And like I said, it's the work of a lifetime to recover the Genesis version of ourselves, and that's the invitation here. But since it's the work of a lifetime, we need to set our expectations accordingly. Verse 7, then. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, when someone's um, impatient, we call them short-tempered. The literal translation of patient here is long-tempered. And I kind of love it because I like the mindset more. It's like, take your temper and elongate it. Set your expectations for the long haul. And James would have us look at how a farmer waits for fruit. He calls it precious fruit. It's not just you know, anything. It's precious fruit. It's re receiving the early and the late rains. It's a process. It's one that takes time. It's one that's worth it. And it's one that we're expected to participate in. Now, when I was thinking and praying about all this, I felt God provide a picture of diamonds. Diamonds are unique. They're beautiful. And they're extremely hard-wearing. The only thing that can scratch a diamond is a diamond. They are the natu nat hardest naturally occurring mineral on our planet. And the difference, the way we get from carbon, this dark gray, low value material, to a diamond, pressure, and time. Quite a lot, actually. 725,000 pounds per square inch, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for one to three billion years. That's no small thing, is it? Now, clearly, the particulars are uh, different, but I felt God was saying that he's in the business of creating a diamond faith in us. Unique, beautiful, and hard-wearing. And it takes pressure and time. History itself pivots on and was transformed by an extraordinary moment of suffering, the cross. If that's true of God himself in the person of Jesus, I do have to ask... Do we have a right understanding of suffering? Does it feel pointless or, so, uh, or hopeless to you? Or are you able to see that God can and does work in your suffering when you persevere? Okay, so if suffering has a purpose. Where is God in all this? What does he have to say? So let's look at that. That's part two, his offer to us. At the back end of John's gospel, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he tells his disciples in John 16, 33, he says, in this Life in the world, you will have tribulation. Okay, trouble. He says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. But he says, there's help. Just before that, he offers help. He says, very truly, I tell you, it is good for you that I, that's Jesus, am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, the advocate. 
The idea here is that Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit as this advocate to help us when in the world we have tribulation, stress, strife, worries, and persecution. And if the idea of the Holy Spirit being with you seems like small comfort, which, if I'm honest, it has for me in the past, then it's likely we've not fully understood the enormity of that offer. Advocate is only one way to translate the word here in the Greek, parakletos. Now bear with me because it really matters. If we're going to understand the offer, it matters that we understand what's going on here. This word parakletos, sometimes we'd say paraclete, breaks down into two parts. Para means alongside. Kletos is a speaker or an invoker. So alongside speaker. Now in Jewish courts, this would be a character witness or a legal assistant. In battle, it would be the person who goes out Rally, does the rallying cry and galvanizes the soldiers. There's an element of help, counsel, mediation, encouragement, strengthening, and yes, advocacy baked into this one word. And Jesus is saying that when we hit hard times, it's the Holy Spirit who will come alongside us and speak into our situations and see who we were called to be. Now, we also need to notice something else about parakletos. Kletos is an active word. God speaks. There is something extremely and extraordinarily powerful about words, and in particular, God's words. In the beginning was the, thank you, and the, was with God, and the, was God. You got it. That's the beginning of John's gospel. God's word has the power to create universes. And in some senses, John is, is equating God with his very active word. It's like the very power of God resides in his word. But again, Isaiah 55, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. This is God talking. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's words do what he intends for them to do. And he promises he will send his alongside speaker to walk with us in this life. We don't go it alone. And when it's really bad, Paul reminds us this in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's why having God's Spirit is so remarkable. When we go through the mill, when we go through the churn of life, God's Spirit intercedes, sits between God and us, and expresses the very depths of our souls to God himself. Divine mystery, that one, to me. Comforting one, though. A few years back, I was in Los Angeles with work, and a few of us who were over were playing basketball in our lunch break. Somehow in the game, I went to the ground, and someone landed on the back of my shoulder, and it dislocated. And if you're wincing, just know that it is as painful as you think it is. <laughs> as they loaded me up on the gurney, the trolley, and transported me in the ambulance to the hospital over the most potholed roads on the planet, I could barely speak. And I nearly passed out on several occasions, I think, with the pain. All I knew was the pain. And at the hospital, it wasn't much better either, as I had to sit there waiting. One of my colleagues, a friend, 
was with me the entire time. He was right there by my side when I had my eyes closed in agony, waiting for x-rays, doctors, and the joyous moment when my shoulder would be back in, in its socket. He spoke to the doctors for me, he spoke with me, and he waited patiently for several hours as I was treated. And that's a tiny glimpse of what God's offer is like. The Holy Spirit offers to be with us when trouble hits, to speak with us, to speak on our behalf. And when he speaks, he can bring universes into being. Do you see that this morning? Or do you have trouble believing that God's word has power? So then what's our response or responsibility here? Well, with all of that in place, we can return to what James is saying. Given suffering will come, and given God's extraordinary offer, what's our place with it here? Well, it starts with our attitude. It starts with the heart. I mentioned patience earlier about setting expectations accordingly, so I shan't repeat myself too much besides saying, be long-tempered, just because I can. But let's look at the next part. Back to James, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, capital J, that's Jesus, is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Greek is full of compassion. We heard some of this in Sam's sermon a few weeks ago, and it is showing up again here too. James is taking great pains to point out that when we accuse and grumble against one another, it's serious enough to get the judges, Jesus' somewhat negative attention. And we know all too acutely the pain and the anguish caused by rifts and arguments within the church, grumbling that we think is perhaps justified. But we have to be very careful here. Grumbling is very much not the same thing as open, honest conversation, or seeking justice and right outcomes. Grumbling is a critical, negative disposition that often gives way to more damage. Honest conversation gives way to healing and restoration. The, the attitude behind each is as different as it gets. But here I also think we might be seeing an echo, because James's audiences are primarily Jewish believers, and if there's one story they would know from their Old Testament about grumbling, it would be the story of Exodus. Now, you likely remember this one. But it's the story of Exodus is where the, God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. And over the period of 40 years, moves them from, from Egypt to their promised land of freedom and prosperity. Now, you can see that story literally. Or you can perhaps see it as something of a metaphor or an analogy. The ancient Israelites stopped being slaves in Egypt overnight, but they have to learn to live as free people. In much the same way, we as Christians are freed from sin, but we have to learn to live as free people. Now, it's in the middle of their process of transformation that the ancient Israelites, yes, you guessed it, they grumble. They look back at their life of slavery and they effectively go, well, it wasn't so bad, really. In fact, they actually had some quite nice food. Better than this manna stuff I seem to be finding on the floor every morning. That's not to my tastes. Side note, God is still good to his word. He delivers them to their promised land, but because of their grumbling, he just takes them the long way round instead. I wonder how often I've had to go the long way round 
because of my attitude? Difficult question, moving on. <laughs> Equivalently, grumbling for us to one another and towards God is like saying we'd rather not actively engage with the process and the pain of suffering and the transformation God allows in our lives. It's, it's looking to blame, not to build, to hurt, not to heal. It's rejecting God's wisdom and his love and it has significant negative effects on those around us. It often places us in a position of judgment where, if we're honest, we might not be best place to be. So, is James then saying a biblical version of just suck it up and deal with it? No. That would make us passive, mere passengers on the roller coaster ride. Again, it's important that we understand who James is talking to, who the audience is. It's Jewish believers, because there are certain assumptions built into the way he talks to them, much as if I wrote my wife Heather a letter. There's lots of things I wouldn't need to say because she'd already have the context. And the context that we have is James 1, where he says he's writing to the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of what? Israel. There is something interesting, important, and necessary about the name Israel. Do we have any smiths in the house? Any butchers? Wrights? Cartwrights? Wainwrights? Tailors? No? None this morning. That's all right. But if we did, because we have Wendy and David Taylor, right? Normally, um, you'd know what the family did based on the name. So what's our family name? What's our family business, if you like? Genesis 32, 28. Then he said, this is the angel of the Lord, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven, wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob wrestles with God, and as an acknowledgement of that, he gets a new name, Israel, he who contends with God. That's the name, that's the family business. We aren't supposed to grumble, no, but we are supposed to wrestle. Now, I love wrestling. To be fair, I love the modern WWE version with its intro music, pyrotechnics, pomp, and silliness. Not that kind of wrestling, very much demonstrably not that kind of wrestling. It's not that kind of manicured, staged, glorified, sanitized, or aggrandized wrestling. It's, uh, it's the opposite. It's the kind of wrestling that goes into the mud, gets its hands dirty. It's one that honestly, actively engages with what's going on and in a spirit of truth, love, and respect, seeks God and is willing whatever is going on. Now, you might emerge in sweat, mud, blood, grime, and tears, but that's wrestling. Sometimes it's messy and that's okay. To make his point, James would have us look at the Old Testament prophets and Job. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, lover, behold, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Now, the Old Testament prophets, as most of us probably know, went through some pretty horrific circumstances, sometimes being hunted down by the kings and queens of their day, often being the subjects of ridicule or persecution. Now, I won't go into a full breakdown because you can read the Old Testament, but suffice it to say they had it tough and they stuck it out. And James is pointing us to them and saying, despite all that, they were blessed. They were blessed because it produced fruit. It produced this character of hope that Paul is talking about. It wasn't pointless. 
James also points us towards Job. Now, Job, oh, there's a remarkable book of the Bible, not least because it contains the longest monologue by God anywhere in the Bible. And what motivates this longest monologue? Why, it's Job's suffering. Job is this righteous man who loses virtually everything apart from his life, his health, his family, his property, everything. And spoiler alert, God does at the end of the book bless and restore Job for his steadfastness, his stick atitness. It's the late rains that James is talking about. I find it interesting though, because in terms of the structure, two of those 42 chapters of Job are given over to an introduction. Four at the end are given over to Job and God and their remarkable conversation wherein God, amongst other things, points out that it's he alone that has the overview of creation in mind. But the 36 chapters in the middle are given over to wrestling. Job and his comforters, who most of us know do a pretty abysmal job, try to work through what's happening to Job, and they don't get it right all the time. And God does take them to task over what, some of what they say, probably because the attitude isn't, isn't right. After all, God isn't answerable to us. But the fact remains, James is pointing us to Job and making him his case study. The book of Job spends an enormous amount of time exploring the pain and the process of suffering, and sometimes the process itself is long and painful, but we must engage with it. That's the way to God's comfort, and that's the way to accept his offer. I asked my mum if I could share part of her story, and she agreed. Um, about 40 years ago, roughly around when I was born, my mum wanted to teach children to play the piano, a quiet, understated dream, perhaps, but important for my mum and part of who she is. As a gifted pianist and a teacher, it was a way to express herself and honour the gifts that God has given her. However, when she was at school, she'd broken her elbow after a bad high jump landing. Now, the operation they did, they no longer do because it can cause long-term damage to elbows. And in fact, in my mum, it did. Her elbow disintegrated leaving her with no elbow joint at all and in excruciating pain. She was unable to even play the piano herself, let alone teach anyone. <sighs> then days after we lost my, my uncle, my mum's brother, to a brain tumour, she discovered her own lump. But by the way, it's genuinely terrifying as a teenage boy to discover your mum has cancer. And the cancer spread to a lymph node, and that needed to be removed. But here's the thing. A side effect of removing a lymph node is sometimes numbness. Not for everyone, but it happened to my mum. And in her remission from the cancer, my mum discovered that the pain from her elbow had been anaesthetized by the lymph node removal, and she could play the piano again. One day she was playing the piano with the window open because it was a hot day. And all of a sudden, there's a shout from a neighbor, teach my daughter. And my mum goes, no. <laughs> As you do. Because along with the physical pain, she'd been battling with crushing doubts and uncertainty for 20 years. Because if the dream hadn't died, it was certainly looking peaky. Well, thankfully, the neighbor was stubborn. Teach my daughter, came the request. So it has a nice ending. 20 years on, my mum has taught probably hundreds of students to play the piano. She's widely respected and loved by them and their parents. She has life, love, 
and some music to their lives. Now, what she's been through has changed her. Crucially, she has that character of hope that Paul and James are pointing to. And there is no doubt that given the choice, I'm sure my mum would have chosen to avoid the, the excruciating pain of no elbow joint, the horror and fear of cancer, all of which she's had to wrestle with and work through. And yet when I spoke to her, she simply said, well, I don't know if I've grown spiritually. I said, no, mum, you have. I've seen it. So my mum. Anyway, but I want to give the Lord all the praise and the thanks for what he's done in my life. My mum is a diamond. And I'm not saying that just because she's my mum. I'm saying that because the faith that she has is beautiful, unique, and extremely hard-wearing. She sticks to Jesus through the trials, the suffering, and yes, he's blessed her in many ways through her steadfastness, her stick at itness. So the question is, which do we choose? Grumble or wrestle? Now there's something else here too. You remember I said the word Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit is parakletos, the alongside speaker. Well, one of the great blessings of being where we are in history, after the resurrection, after Pentecost, is that the Holy Spirit has been sent to live in those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. That means we are carriers of the alongside speaker. We are carriers of God's word to other people and even to ourselves. We heard some weeks back from Jason that our words matter and here comes the reminder. The words we use and the words we listen to from others and ourselves have significant impact. I think that might be why he's saying things like do not grumble. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. These things do matter. But our job goes further. When others suffer as carriers of God's word, we must participate in their wrestling, in their comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I was recently signed off from work with mental health issues. It hurt. I was ashamed and embarrassed of the idea that I was unfit to work. Though, if I'm honest, I was also a little relieved to read that little phrase. Space and time to recover, to spend with Jesus, has been an incredible blessing for me over the last few weeks. But then so have other people, other God carriers, if you like. I knew early on in the pandemic and the lockdowns that it would cost me access to friends, family, and church in a way that would have me live inside my own head far too much. But I didn't appreciate how much damage that was doing, having never been through a pandemic before. You know, if you go into a room that's pitch black, your brain fills all, in all the details. My brain does that normally with mountains of risk and fear. And my battle is almost always in here. But I'm thankful because as I'm going on my journey and I'm learning my lessons once again about who I am and who Jesus is, I'm thankful for those around me who can and do speak God's truth into my life. Okay, if the worship team could come back, I'll wrap things up. I want to leave things on a very practical note here. Suffering has a seemingly unique place in our journeys. I don't know exactly why that is, but it does seem to be the case. God's offer is to meet us there through his Holy Spirit, his alongside speaker. 
That's the thing that will help you to stick it up to, as Brian would say, to super stand to the end. We need to avoid being impatient. We need to avoid grumbling or losing heart. Instead, like Israel, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we wrestle. We do that with God and we do that with other Christians. Let me quickly list the opportunities that we have, a guide to wrestling, if you will. You'll know many of these, so I'll try not to labor the point. And yeah, many of them are available in the app. All right, prayer. That brings our words into contact with God. Yeah, sometimes we ask for things, but so often the process of prayer is about realignment for ourselves and for other people. And it's never more critical than when we're in pain. Reading the Bible brings God's word into contact with us. And we, we believe the Holy Spirit shines a light on who we are and the situations we find ourselves in as we read God's word and as we wrestle with what it says. Sozo is, I believe, coming back soon. And until it does, you'll just have to be patient. Ha! It's a way to spend time with God in guided prayer with others to reflect on your identity and to see where truth can displace lies in your life. There's prophecy, because there are those in our church who have the gift of prophecy, who make themselves available to us to provide encouragement, comfort, and strengthening. Powerful conversations, you can meet with a coach. We have gifted coaches in our church too. And they'll, t- they'll help you if you're stuck in your life and you're not sure what to do next, they'll help. Small groups, they bring you into regular contact with God's people who will support you, pray for you, maybe even challenge you. Get involved if you're not already. Then you've got accountability and discipleship groups. God, we're not short of opportunities, are we? Get into a triplet with two or three people. God carries people you can trust. Wrestling buddies, if you will. But ultimately, you've got church. And if you're able and happy to come to church, come. I know that's not true of everybody. And if that's you and you're watching online, just know that we miss you. And when you come here or when you check in online, just know that you're exposing yourself and you're coming into contact with God's transforming truth for your life. And finally, one of my personal favorites, sung worship. It's a remarkable way to come into contact with God's transforming word, isn't it? And never more so than when there's pain and suffering. So with that in mind, I invite you to stand and sing.